this evening. Turn with me to the book of Judges, chapter 12. And most of you are already thinking, where is this going? It's been far too happy a day. We need to spend some time in Judges, the original Game of Thrones. Honestly, Judges, the passage we're looking at, in chapter 12, particularly verse 6, is, is one of those things that uh, in homiletics we're told never to do, and that is use a passage of Scripture as a jumping-off point for your sermon. Uh, but I do believe that it, it will make sense as we go forward. I want to read the passage to give the, the background, verses 1 through 6 of Judges, chapter 12. Then the men of Ephraim were summoned, and they crossed to Zaphon and said to Japheth, Why did you cross over to fight against the sons of Ammon without calling us to go with you? We will burn your house down on you. And Jephthah said to them, I and my people were at great strife with the sons of Ammon. When I called you, you did not deliver me from their hand. And when I saw that you would not deliver me, I took my life into my hands and crossed over against the sons of Ammon. And the Lord gave them into my hand. Why then have you come up to me this day to fight against me? Then Jephthah gathered all the men of Gilead and fought Ephraim. And the men of Gilead defeated Ephraim because they said, You are fugitives of Ephraim, O Gileadites, in the midst of Ephraim and in the midst of Manasseh. And the Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan opposite Ephraim. And it happened when any of the fugitives of Ephraim said, Let me cross over, the men of Gilead would say to him, Are you an Ephraimite? If he said no, then they would say to him, Say now, Shibboleth. But he said, Sibboleth, for he could not pronounce it correctly. Then they seized him and slew him at the fords of the Jordan. Thus there fell at that time 42,000 of Ephraim. Let us pray. Father, we do ask that you would guide us this evening into all truth by your Holy Spirit. Allow us to grow in understanding of how we are to live, how we are to conduct ourselves in the household of God. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. And I am gratified that others find that story humorous as well. Oftentimes when we are called upon on short notice to, to fill the pulpit, as today with David being ill, uh, we, we turn to what we have been dealing with and thinking on for the past um, weeks and months. Uh, each of us undoubtedly has something on our mind as we're preparing a lesson and, um, or just dealing with the issues within the church or within the churches. This message this evening ties in with the Sunday School lessons that I have been bringing uh, these last few weeks on creeds and confessions and in particularly confessionalism. When we think of the Reformation, we tend to think of Martin Luther. Perhaps you're familiar with Ulrich Zwingli. Certainly you've heard of the name John Calvin. But the Reformation went on for uh, a long time beyond the lives and the deaths of these original reformers. And in the 17th century, it had a massive impact on England. And much of our heritage here, of course, in the United States comes from that country, as we were once the colonies of Great Britain. During the reign of Elizabeth, actually I think the reign of Henry, Henry VIII, the um, 
switch from Roman Catholicism to the Church of England also came with an act from Parliament called an Act of Uniformity. And this was something that most kings and queens of England then repeated when they ascended to the throne. Parliament would pass an Act of Uniformity. And in that Act of Uniformity, all of the churches of England were directed to use the identical prayers and homilies on each given Sunday. Elizabeth justified it this way, Queen Elizabeth, in that if a man were traveling through England on business and he was in a village not his home, and on the Lord's Day he would go into the church, the local church of England, he would safely hear the same thing that he might have heard had he been at home. There would be no danger of that man hearing something false or different so that every preacher would say the same thing and lift up the same prayers, regardless of which church they may be in in England. This was offensive to a group of believers that came in Elizabeth's time to be known as the Puritans. And most of you are familiar with the Puritans, and, and most um, evangelicals in the United States still look to the Puritans to, with somewhat of respect, but the name itself was a derogatory term that um, most historians believe was coined by Elizabeth, that they were too pure to associate with the rest of the people in England. But the Puritans were put on the outside because of this act of these acts of uniformity, which were repeated in the, in the reigns of King James I and then Charles I. But we are familiar, I think, with the history of England in the 17th century that there was a civil war, and largely the forces of Parliament that were allied with the Puritans were on the side of, of victory. King Charles, of course, uh, lost his head. And there was a period known as the Interregnum where England did not have a king, but Oliver Cromwell, who was far more popular in this country than he is in his own, ruled England as the Lord Protector. But when he died, Parliament found that his son was not quite up to it, and so they brought back the Stuart, Charles II, who almost immediately passed through Parliament another act of uniformity. And during that act, which again required that all of the pastors and all of the churches utter up the same prayers and deliver the same homilies and use the same passages from the Book of Common Prayer each given Sunday so that there would be uniformity in the church. Over 2,000 ministers were ejected from their churches for their unwillingness, beginning the movement known as nonconformity. And if there's ever been a nonconformist nation on the planet, it is the United States of America. These became our spiritual forefathers, the nonconformists, one of whom we're very familiar, John Bunyan, who was not ejected from a church because he was a Baptist all the way through, spent 12 years in prison because of the act of uniformity. This was a civilized shibboleth. It wasn't like the days of Elizabeth's sister Mary when these people were taken out and burnt at the stake. They were not executed. But men who had the call of God upon their lives to minister the word were put out of their churches, which was their only means of living. And some of them were, in fact, imprisoned. Shibboleths exist today in the church. And our church is undergoing just such a situation at this present time. 
There has been an organization just, uh, just this past year, an organization of Reformed Baptist churches that was brought about to replace a previous organization of Baptist churches which failed. And our church, though we are Baptistic and though we are Calvinistic, uh, were not invited to attend because we do not say the word correctly. We are not a member. Now, we have been graciously invited to be associate members who are allowed to pay the dues but have no voice in the sayings. Isn't that grand? This is contemporary shibboleths, an exclusive manner of speaking. And if you don't speak in that manner, then you are put out. If you don't say the shibboleth, the way it is to be said. You're not taken by the River Jordan and killed anymore. And we do praise God for that. But you are put out of the church, or you are put out of the network, or you are denied collegial communion with fellow believers. The theme of the book of Judges is mentioned a number of times through the book. It's every man did that which was right in his own eyes. And, and so it would seem that Judges, of all books, would be a book that would support arguments for an act of uniformity, would it not? Every man doing what was right in his own eyes. Somebody needs to standardize this. Somebody needs to bring everything together so that everybody's doing the same thing and, and hopefully that that they're doing is pleasing to God. Although in the history of both Judaism and Christianity, uniformity has not always corresponded with biblical truth. And oftentimes it's quite different. The background of the story, Ephraim was jealous because one of their members, one of their tribesmen, Jephthah, had entered into a war with Ammon without calling their support. Now, it was a bit disingenuous of the Ephraimites because, as Jephthah said, they had the opportunity to come and defend Jephthah and the Gileadites against the sons of Ammon, but they chose not to. And undoubtedly, when Jephthah went to war against the sons of Ammon, the Ephraimites probably figured that they would lose. But they didn't. They won, which meant they went away with great spoil and riches. And this, of course, was what motivated the Ephraimites but apparently, Ephraimites, at least in that day, were incapable of pronouncing the S-H sound. And so, this shibboleth was uh, devised for determining whether or not a soldier who was fleeing from the battle was, in fact, from Ephraim. If they could say shibboleth, they lived. If they could not, if they said shibboleth, they died. The word shibboleth has entered into our vocabulary as a means of separating us from them. And it is um, tacitly in, in everybody's life, when you hear someone speak, if they garble their grammar, if they pronounce something with a strong Yankee accent, if they say it in some way, that is not comfortable to you, you basically enact the shibboleth. You don't take them out by the river and kill them, but they're on the outside. You're on the inside, they're on the outside. Us, them. 
And it comes down to their language, how they say what they say. But is there any place in Christ's church for the shibboleth? Is there any justification for Christians to employ, consciously or unconsciously, shibboleths toward one another? Well, before we deny any place for shibboleths entirely, let us consider the importance of words. Words do matter. Our guiding passage through the Sunday school class these past few weeks is found in 2 Timothy chapter 1, where Paul admonishes Timothy to retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. It is evident from Scripture that what we say matters. It is becoming less evident in the world in which we live here in the United States and in Western society in general, but it still matters what we say. I teach the economics class for the Homeschool Resource Center. Now, if I were to stand before my class and profess a belief that the government and the government alone should own all means of production for all industries in this country, that they should own everything from the, from the raw materials all the way through to the distribution, and then in the same breath proclaim myself a capitalist, it would be justified for my students to say, no, you are a socialist or a communist. Words mean something. In Christianity, the same thing is true. Paul says there is a pattern of sound words. Timothy, hold fast to those words. Christianity is grounded in a belief that the Bible is the Word of God. Now, the Bible says things that are not culturally, politically correct. It always has, in every age. In the New Testament age of the Roman Empire, the Bible said things that the Romans considered to be incorrect, unacceptable. But Christianity is, is founded on that, just as Islam is founded on the teachings of the Koran. Now, it is quite reasonable to grant the right of any person to deny the teachings of the Koran or to deny the teachings of the Bible. What isn't acceptable is that person who denies the teaching of the Koran claiming to be a Muslim or that person who denies the teachings of the Bible claiming to be a Christian. Now that doesn't mean that we all agree on everything the Bible teaches, nor do Muslims agree entirely on what the Koran teaches. That's not the point. The point is that there are fundamental principles, not only in economics or in politics, but also in religion. Religions are, are based on a set of principles that their, their adherents are to agree with, or if they do not agree with them, no longer retain the name of that religion. I think that's reasonable. It's not intolerance, because everyone has the right, especially in our country, to believe whatever they desire. That's not what we're arguing. What we're arguing is that if you believe that the government should own all the means of production, then don't call yourself a capitalist. 
If you do not believe, for example, that Jesus was born of a virgin, that he is an incarnate God, and that he is the only name given under heaven by which we must be saved, well then, for Pete's sake, don't call yourself a Christian. If you do not believe that Muhammad is the prophet, then don't call yourself a Muslim. I think it's very reasonable. Words do matter, and especially religious words. Religious beliefs are both inclusive and exclusive by nature. It has always been that way, and, and saying it is not so, or saying that we are an inclusive religion, that is actually an oxymoron. Even if you have no religion at all, that excludes all those who do. And I can assure you, it will be many generations before you ever see that bumper sticker coexist on the rear end of a camel. We are the most tolerant society this, this world has ever known. It, it kind of gripes me when I see that because we do coexist. We do not have religious warfare going on in this country. We may have debate, and sometimes that debate may be rancorous, but generally speaking, our elections are quite peaceful compared to the rest of the world and the rest of history. People have the right in this country, and I think we should defend that right to believe what they will. But have the intellectual integrity not to claim the name of a religion whose doctrines you do not agree with. So words matter. And so perhaps we should have shibboleths. What we say is very important, and it cannot be forced into an act of uniformity. The government might someday force us at gunpoint to say what they would have us say, but they cannot, by any force, make us believe it. We own that right. We own that right before God to believe what we believe to be true and in accordance with what we say is true to guide our lives accordingly. But how we say it, now that's a little different. What we say is very important, but how we say it is really the issue of the shibboleth. I have experienced as a pastor, and I know David and Mark have as well, times when, when people have visited our church for a number of weeks, perhaps uh, even months, and they participated in the Sunday school class or they attended the Thursday evening theology class. And we come to the realization as we communicate, as we listen to the questions and the comments that the person is making, we come to the realization that we're actually saying the same thing, but we're not saying it the same way. And so it's almost as if we're speaking foreign languages. Though we are both speaking English, we're not using the same terminology. We're not quoting the same authors. We're not referring to the same sections of the same confession. But we're saying the same thing. But because we're not saying it the same way, it is inevitable that there will be a parting of the ways. That the person who is, is visiting, who's listening, who's trying to determine if this is where they want to worship, is not hearing the things in the way that they are accustomed to hearing them. And that is frightening for many people. We are comfortable with our shibboleths. 
We're comfortable with people who say not only the same things we say, but they say them in the same way. I think it is very important, and I've recommended this to people, if you are visiting a church, and I'm not recommending any of you go visiting churches, but if you know anything about the different theological flavors that are within Christianity, it is interesting if you go into the library or especially the pastor's study and look at the books on his bookshelf. I remember once years ago having a, a lunch meeting with some pastors and after work, afterward I went back to this one pastor's church and we were going to talk in his office and, and every time I go into someone's office it, it's just kind of, I'm always looking at their bookshelves. Everything on his shelf was by the same author. I don't think that's a good thing. I think that's a form of theological shibboleth. Everything needs to be said and filtered through the means of presenting theology and pastoral doctrine and practice of this particular author. Maybe it's John Calvin. Maybe it's John MacArthur. Maybe it's John Piper, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. The definition of a shibboleth found online basically described that a person whose way of speaking violates a shibboleth is identified as an outsider and thereby excluded from the group. Now, back to our passage in Judges, Gilead was in Ephraim and, of course, in Israel. These were brethren. Now, obviously, the issues were different. But they used a speech impediment of one group to isolate it and then, of course, eradicate it. Used as an instrument of war, it was, it was rather effective. But within the church, does it have any place? Especially within fellow believers whose agreement on doctrine far outweigh any disagreements. And yet, it is true that the way of speaking identifies us as either in or out. And one of the reasons that we are going through the Sunday School class is because currently and for the past umpteen years, I will tell to you that, say to you that the way we speak at Fellowship Bible Church has put us on the outside of the Reformed Baptist community, even though we are almost always saying the exact same thing, but we're not saying it the exact same way. There are accents, there are dialects in human speech, there are accents and there are dialects in theological speech as well. And it may seem shilly, but if you don't say things just the way you're supposed to, you end up on the outside. Let us pray. Father, we ask that you would grant us grace to avoid erecting consciously these shibboleths that separate men within the church when they should not be separated but should rather be united. We pray that you would allow us to stand against a false uniformity that follows a form of speaking.
and rather we would hold fast to the unity that comes from that pattern of sound words that we derive from your Bible. We do pray, Father, for unity among the brethren. We pray for those who have like faith as our own, that we might continue to be able to fellowship with them, that we might, overlooking the shibboleth, continue to lift up their congregations in prayer, and to rejoice with those who do fellowship with us as we experienced this past Wednesday. We pray, Father, that there be no unnecessary divisions within your church, but that you would bring about that unity with which we are bound together by one confession and in one hope of the resurrection. We ask that you would do this for your glory and for our good and our joy. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction this evening. Simple benediction from the last chapter of 2 Timothy. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Amen.